William Barclay, one of my favorite theologians, he's actually called the layman's theologian, once described the Sermon on the Mount as the Magna Carta of the Kingdom of God. Jesus the King is declaring his manifesto on the Sermon on the Mount. It is like the New Testament constitution that comes from the king who is going to reign the domain of God. And so, Beatitudes, the opening sen sentences or the opening pronouncements of the Sermon on the Mount is like a preamble, right? The preamble to the constitution. That's what we have been studying. And last week, we looked at uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit earth. And I told you that is the only beatitude which actually offers us a material reward, inheriting the earth. And I also told you the word meekness often is misconceived as weakness in our culture. Quite often we look at a meek person as a very submissive quiet and calm, nice person. <laughs> but the actual word that is used there, praus, is far, far different from our conception of the word meek or even gentle as we understand in English. And I told you it is a word which is used to describe a domesticated animal which is trained to obey commandment. It has every impulse and every instinct, but it is under the control of God. It knows whom to bite, when to bite, how to bite. So that is the kind of a person, Praus, and Jesus himself who described, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am meek and humble in spirit. And I read it in a blog and, and that person said, Jesus is the rudest Christian I know. <laughs> Jesus is the, it's, it's funny. <laughs> Jesus is the rudest Christian I know because he, he had no respect. I mean, no, he was very disrespectful to the political authorities of his time. He was very disrespectful to the religious authorities of his time. And he created that big brawl in the, <laughs> uh, in the, uh, in the temple, right? And uh, you know, so Jesus was no submissive, spineless, meek person as we understand, but he was praus. So we have to have our every instinct and every impulse under not our control. Self-control is not as easy as Oprah and other people make you think. You know, it is, it is just not that easy. I'm not talking about self-control. I'm talking about God's control on your impulse and your instinct and guided by the Holy Spirit. And then we become praus, and then we will inherit the promised land. Whether it is physical real estate or spiritual real estate, that is the promise of the king in his manifesto. Okay? Now, we are going to look at the next one. This is the fourth one. So, would you stand with me for the reading of the word? And we are going to read it together. 
Matthew chapter 5:6. Yes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I would say out of all the Beatitudes, this is the trickiest one, trickiest. What, what I meant by is that you have to read the fine print. You have to read the fine print. See, the other Beatitudes are like, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. So you naturally assume that this will be blessed are the righteous, right? No, that's not how it says. See, that's why I read the fine print. <laughs> the beatitude does not say blessed are the righteous. It says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who crave for righteousness. Blessed are those who have a deep desire for righteousness. And Jesus did not. Very cleverly avoided a theological pitfall. Because if he said, blessed are the righteous, he would have shaken down the theology of the entire Bible in a way. Because, I'll, I'll, I'll explain this. You know, one thing that differs Christianity from all other religions is that Christianity says very clearly, there is no one righteous, not even one. The Bible seems to be very adamant about this. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12 reads, as it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks out God. They, are, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one, including the pastors, including the leaders, including Christians. It doesn't matter. There is no one righteous. And Romans says as it is written because it is a direct quote from Psalms 14 and Psalms 54. It is not just a New Testament theology. It is weaved in all through the Bible that there is no one righteous. No one can be righteous. Now the definition of righteousness is where, as I said, Christianity differs from uh, other world religions. Let me take a small digression. This, some of you know this is my favorite topic. I'm going to give you a gist of my understanding of world religions on the issue of righteousness probably in the next few minutes. See, whenever religion, see religions, whether it is Christian religion or any religions, a religion is essentially a pursuit of righteousness. You know, to make things right. The good over evil. That's what all religions try to accomplish, right? Now, in a 
traditional religious setting, it is often understood as a weighing balance. You know what I'm talking about? A scale or a balance. And I have a picture for you. Um, yes. So keep that picture in your mind, and you see some other words. Now, in the Eastern religions, for example, you might have heard the word karma, right? Karma. Very often, people toss that word around in the Western setting. It comes from India, where I was born. It's a Sanskrit word, karma. That's how it is written. Now, karma only means action, but the, the, but the way it works is a scale. According to karmic philosophy in Eastern religions, whether it is Hinduism or Buddhism or Sikhism or any of that Eastern religions, in the afterlife, your good deeds or good karma and the bad deeds or bad karma are weighed on a balance. And if you have positive karma, which means that if your good work outweighs your bad work, then you go up in the reincarnation cycle. Okay, don't worry about all of this, you know, if you don't understand reincarnation. That's my, my purpose. But if your, if your evil deeds outweigh your good deeds, you will go down in the reincarnation cycle. That's the philosophy, fundamental proposition of Eastern religions. It is essentially a balance where your good deeds and the bad deeds are on a balance and what outweighs the other. You know, that's, that's, going to, that's going to decide your fate in the afterlife, karma. And in Islam, it is pretty much the same principle. It's called mizan, an Arabic word which represents balance, the exact scale, right? And according to Islam, the same day Allah gathered the dying soul and weighed their good works and the bad works on a balance and see where it tilt, right, where it tilt. But the good thing about Islam, as opposed to Eastern religions though, Allah promises that there is a multiplication factor for your good deeds. So if you do a good deed, Allah will give you another nine good deeds as a, or it will be multiplied by 10 as a bonus. That's, that's good, right? <laughs> so you can, you know what I mean. <laughs> So it's much easier than the Eastern religions to somehow get across uh, that afterlife you really want and desire. But again, the principle, the philosophy is that we understand it as a balance, good or bad, where it goes, right? Now, when it comes to Christianity, this is diametrically different. Although, although, as Christians, <laughs> even as evangelical, born-again Christians, we also subtly or subconsciously subscribes to this understanding of a balance. Even though we know that this is theologically wrong, somehow, I don't know about you, I do this too, right? You know, when I feel very bad about something I did, when I feel that I'm, I'm not good enough in front of God, I always try to balance, my, I put myself on a balance. Because this is not good versus bad balance, but me versus the other kind of a balance. I picture a, a balance, and then I step into one plate. And I, I know, oh, 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 I'm going up, and then I, I put somebody else. I don't know, Jeremy <laughs> or Janine, whoever. They're wonderful people, you know. 
But so, so sometimes I say, wow, they are smarter than I am. They are better. But in this issue, I'm better than they are, right? So I can see the balance going up and somebody else on the other plate. And we try to be, well, you know, I'm not that bad, right? Make me, make feel, you know. And sometimes, by mistake, I put Mother Teresa on the other side of the plate. And then that worries me because that side tilt way far, right? Then immediately I wake up and I put Charles Mason, Charles Manson, right? Charles Manson on the other side. Then I see, oh, I go way up here. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on who you put, you know, Martin Luther King or, or then immediately put uh, King Jong, you know, you, you can balance that. Somehow, somehow I always imagine at the end of the day, God is going to curve the grade like a professor. Right? You know, the professors curve the grade when people get extreme score. And somehow I will manage. I'm, I'm an average person. See, I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm not really that bad. You know, that, so that's the, you know, I, I know you don't want to admit it, but this is something we all do. Right? Whatever the theology of the Bible. So this understanding of the balance has been kind of etched into our conscience. But the theology of the Bible differs. Here is the problem. The Bible says, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount says, you read further into it, Jesus said, you ought to be perfect. Ask God himself to be perfect. Or your Father in heaven himself is perfect. Yeah. And the book of Leviticus said, you have to be holy like God himself is holy. Now that is ridiculously impossible, right? <laughs> so the problem in the Bible is that in that balance where I put myself on one side and God put himself on the other side. Now the pendulum or the, the balance actually tilts, it upends, it flips. And that's why Isaiah said, very famous words, Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All these righteous things you do, all this time you volunteer, all those money you put in the basket are nothing but filthy garments. It doesn't matter you multiply it by 10 times or 100 times because on the other side of the balance is God. There is no way you are going to measure up. Now that is a problem. See, that's why in Christianity, only in Christianity, God comes down as a human being and he becomes Emmanuel, Emmanuel, the God who is with us, not the God who is on the other plate of the balance, no, the God who is on this plate of the balance. Now when the, when the balance tilts towards this, this way, God is here and I'm here, Jesus walks into my plate and now we have a balance. God on one side and Jesus on the other side. It's not our weight. We just happen to be in that plate. 
And that's why salvation is a free gift only in Christianity. Because salvation is a work of God, not of human being, only in Christianity. And that's how we achieve that balance of that weighing scale. And in, that's why in Christianity, righteousness is not a moral stance. Righteousness is not a philosophical proposition, but righteousness is the right relationship with God. The easy definition of righteousness, if you understand Christian theology, is righteousness is the right relationship with God. Not this way, not this way. You are in a perfect harmony, in sync with God. Not by our power, but by the power of Christ. Now, this is why the Bible says, Christ is our righteousness. And I'm giving you some verses you can go and study, and I know it will take, I'll give you a few seconds to look at it. It might be mind-boggling for you even to think about it. Because in Christianity, again, righteousness is not a moral action, but it is a person. <laughs> it is a person. Christ is our righteousness. The, the fact that Christ stepped into our plate, that is what brings us righteousness. Now, the next part will be a little, again, mind-boggling. Because religions teach us to do right things so that we can become righteous, right? Do the right thing. Do good things so that you, you become righteous and, and attain the salvation that God is going to offer you. In Christianity... We are not doing the right things so that we can become righteous, but we are doing the right things because we are already righteous in Christ. It is a natural outflow of the salvation that has already worked inside us through the Holy Spirit of God. So we have to be very, very, if you can memorize what I said, that, that what, what is written there, we are not trying to, we are not doing the right things to become righteous. That is what religion teaches us to do. But we are doing right things. We still have to do right things. That is because we are already righteous in Christ. See, I also want you to know that I'm not, I'm not going to give you another Greek word for sure. I, I was tempted, but I'm not going to. But just take my word from me today, just for this week. The word which is used for righteousness there, the Greek word, is the same as the Greek word used for justice. You know, we talk about justice very often in our culture today, right? But it's funny, if you really Google, simply not Google, search through the New Testament text in English, you hardly find the word justice. Justice is not a word very often used. That's not because the Bible is against justice. The word used for justice and righteousness are the same, are the same. It is like two sides of, a, of the same coin. You know what I mean? So the same word can be righteousness in relation to God and justice in relation to human being. See, the problem is that which side of the coin are you using? 
right? Which side of the coin are we using? And in this case, very clearly, and when you have the right relationship with God, you will automatically will have the right relationship with human beings. And if you don't have the right relationship with human beings, then you have to go back to your, check your relationship with God. Because righteousness will produce justice. And justice doesn't always produce righteousness. Classic example is China or other communist countries. They were trying to do justice. And in so many ways, their actions can be justified. They were trying to bring in an envision a society which is just and peaceful. But what it created is evil and havoc. But now, we know as Christians, and the moment we have righteousness on the one side of the coin, that's the head of the coin. That's the, coin, that's the, that's the side we are flipping for. Once we have that side, then the other side will automatically follow. And if it doesn't, if justice is not there, we have to go back and check our righteousness and our relationship with God. Now, going back to what I said, and this might leave you in confusion. Did our pastor said it doesn't really matter that whether you do right thing, you know, you don't have to do right thing. You know, I'm, I know I'm going to get some emails, so I'm going to clarify this. Right? <laughs> See, what is the meaning of morality if you don't have to do right things, uh, you know, to become righteous? Or if you don't have to do that? It's, this is the theme which is often repeated in the book of Romans. And, you know, like, you know, uh, you know they, when, when Peter, uh, sorry, Paul was preaching grace and people were asking, so if it is all about grace, why can't we continue sinning, you know? If, if my action is not what made me righteous, why don't I do sin? Why don't I do an evil act if that is not what is going to determine in some way my afterlife? Let me, let me, think, let me, let me put this as an analogy. Joanne and I have been married for 24 years. You know, in the last 24 years, I have had many opportunities to be unfaithful to her. The nature of my job, I was in my corporate sector and traveling all along and, um, and uh, you know, in different settings. But that kind of a thought never crossed my mind, not because I'm a moral person, not because that is against the law of God, it is just because I am so passionately in love with Joanne that I know the very thought of being unfaithful will hurt her heart. Imagine God one day said, it's okay to be unfaithful in marriage. I'm going to change the law. Okay? Imagine, that's fine. I'm going to strike down the seventh commandment from the ten commandments. I'm just saying that, you know, hypothetically, right? It's okay to commit adultery, you know, if, if God says that. I still can't do it because the action of not being unfaithful is not determined based on a law God or somebody has given to me, but it is based on the love I have for my spouse. It doesn't matter what the law says. Does that make sense? So this is what happens in Christianity. God is inviting us into a passionate relationship with him 
so that our attitude towards them is not determined by the law, but by love. See, the paradigm shifted from the law of God in the New Testament to the love of God. Now, that's what happened on the cross. There is another famous verse. Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. The scribes and Pharisees are no easy people. They are the MDiv and the PhDs in theology. They meticulously observe the law of God. They took God's commandments and split it into 630 mitzvots and obeyed that. Then they were, that was not good enough. And they split it into Mishnah with the oral Torah. And they created this so that they can meticulously, without any fault, observe this law. But Jesus said, if that's the way you are going to obey me, even after doing all these things, Jesus accused them that they praise me, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. See, that's the problem with what we call legalism. You can be a perfect Christian. You can do everything right. You can please your pastor and your friends and your everybody, but if your heart is far from God, a devotion without passion, has lost all the beauty of, of, of being faith, to be called faith. Faith without passion is what brought America to this extent. And I know in the, in the, in the 1900 and the 1800, and people will go to church and they will be very obedient. They will wear the best cloth and they will stand straight and they will listen to the preacher and come back and they obey that this is all good. But at some point that the children were watching, at the, they're watching their parents and they didn't understand. They, all they knew was their parents go through the motions, very good motions. You know, it's all fine. It's all fine. But they didn't see the passion. See, that's why the fastest growing churches in the world today are Pentecostal churches. I don't think they are particularly greater than any other denomination, but they brought this, this idea of passion into faith. And people were craving for it because I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is a phenomenon. It is what it is. Faith without passion. Love cannot exist without passion. Love cannot exist without passion. So when Jesus said our righteousness should surpass the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, what he really meant is that your way of measuring the righteousness should move from, you know, connecting with the law of a religion, but to the love of God. The question is, how passionately are you in love with God? How intense is your desire for intimacy with him? That is what the Beatitudes is asking. In so many ways, this Beatitudes is the most promising Beatitudes. Because it promises that even if you are not righteous in the sense, in the standard of the world, even if you are not a perfect person, even if you have done many wrong things, I still love you if you have the passion for me. If you have an intense craving for intimacy with me. 
when I was driving uh, to the church and I was listening to a song by Gary Chapman, the late 90s, that song really influenced me. It's called A Man After My Own Heart, God's Own Heart. What a powerful song, actually. I was thinking about David. David has done so many wrong things, right? Adultery, murder, oh my goodness, you know, he probably check every, but he had this passionate desire and he said in Psalm 27, there is only one thing I want to be, to dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. That was his passion, to be with God, that craving for intimacy. And God looked at this adulterer, murderer, and said, man after my own heart. And I want you to know today, some of you think this way. You know, churches have a way of guilting people into doing things. And some of the people struggle with the issue of shame and guilt in churches. And I want you to know that. If you think that you failed God, you think you failed your family, you think you failed your church, here is a God who is going to reward you for your dreams. Not all the dreams may have come to fruition, but that's exactly what Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. If you have a dream, if you have a dream for my kingdom, it may never happen. If you have an intense craving for the goodness of our community, it may not happen. It doesn't matter. I am going to reward you for that. That's exactly what this, this beatitude says. I will reward you for your dreams. And that's the promise of God because he is going to judge us based on the love of God, not on the law of God. I'm going to invite the worship team back. I'm going to say a prayer for us. Father God, brokenness is in the very nature of humanity. That doesn't exclude anyone, whether they are Christians or not, whether they are pastors or not, whether they are church leaders or not. So here we are, Lord. We are here with our broken dreams, fallible, moral pretenses that we do when we go to church, try to act as everything is fine and dandy. Lord, thank you for that beatitude. Thank you for the promise that you will satisfy our desire. You will bring our dreams to fruition. And you are the one who makes us righteous. Thank you for stepping into our side of the plate in that balance. Thank you for making us righteous. And help us to continue in the right relationship with God and right relationship with humanity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.